What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. American mythology tells the story of a beautiful land that awaited European settlers. In the early 1600s, they were met by a welcoming native tribe with whom they shared a hearty fall meal. It's a story that is told in all kinds of spaces, in schools, in media, in pop culture. But of course, the history often told is one-sided, and it's not the side that was decimated by smallpox. As many folks celebrate with family, Thanksgiving appears void of the violent experience of American colonization. Can we really distinguish the holiday from its origin? On today's show, a retelling of that story with a member of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe, the same tribe featured in the Thanksgiving mythology. Hartman Dietz has been a cultural steward of his people through language, material, and performing arts, and by giving audiences like us a juicy retelling of the Thanksgiving story. Hartman, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks, Jesse, for having me. I uh, appreciate the chance to, to share the story of, of our side of this event. Really happy to have you here. First things first, I'm wondering if we can start with that mythology, with the mythology of the Thanksgiving story. Later, we'll talk about the impact of it on you and your family and also how you're stewarding some of your culture and tradition. But first, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the pilgrims and Indians sat down and enjoyed a fall harvest meal together. What did that look like? Um, well, you know, just sort of back up, you know, um, you know, we are in the season to say Thanksgiving and, um, you know, previous to European folks arriving on our shores, it was always the season for Thanksgiving. Um, Wampanoag traditionally have 13 Thanksgivings a year. So every cycle of the moon is a new Thanksgiving, starting with the, uh, the herring who bring our year into our new year in and that's in um in may generally after the snow starts to recede and after the ground starts to melt and thaw um you can start to do your planting and those herring bring the new year with them in the spring with that return of life after the herring you have uh you know you you give thanks for the strawberries you give thanks for the cranberries you give thanks for maple sugar you give thanks for the trees when they drop their leaves you give Thanks for the deer when they drop their antlers. You know, each cycle of the moon has something that you're supposed to be in appreciation of. Uh, so it's always time for Thanksgiving. So when we uh, when we saw these uh, these English folks celebrating the harvest and and the bounty of the harvest, uh, and giving thanks for the food that they had been blessed with, we we certainly understood what it is to give thanks. Thanks was a part of our our everyday life. You know, and uh, the way that the English folks conducted Thanksgiving, as they would call it, was very different than what we know in America today, very different than Native American people's versions of Thanksgiving. And truly, the Harvest Fest was not an actual true Thanksgiving in the sense of the, the Pilgrims and Puritans' view of it. Uh, when, the, when they celebrated what they would call Thanksgiving, it was a day for silent prayer and reflection in church. No singing, no dancing, no sports, no, no feasting. None of that was a part of Thanksgiving. It was silent prayer in church. That was, that was how they observed a Thanksgiving. Uh, what they had was a harvest feast, and they were you know, thankful for the harvest. And that was more what we were akin to um, with our, our Thanksgivings. Um, 
our Thanksgivings often included game of ball, a rough game of ball, team sports, playing one, one side against the other. Our Thanksgivings included big feasting. Our Thanksgivings included songs and dances. So these are, these are a part of how we would celebrate and be thankful for what the, the bounty of the earth had given. But of course, you know, this whole thing gets tied up in the myth of, uh, of what the, the deeper meaning of this encounter was. It was laid down the, the foundational framework for the colonial narrative that somehow uh, Native people gave up their country and turned it over, you know, willingly and, and expediently to the newcoming European folks. Um, and of course, that's simply not the truth. It's not what happens when you go over to somebody's house for dinner. You don't, you know, automatically get to move in and lay claim to the, the deed of the house or the deed of the land or any of the other things that seem to be assumed in that myth. Paint a picture of what Wampanoag life looked like and also how big the tribe was at, at the time. Um, before and at the beginning of, of the introduction of Europeans into the Americas? So it's, it gets complicated because there's a lot of um, misconstrued information that was written down by the colonial people. But Wampanoag, as we, uh, as we call ourselves now, are um, the people of southeastern Massachusetts. And, um, and within the sachemdom, the uh, the you know, the political togetherness of, of uh, the leadership of Usamequin, uh, there was 79 villages, I'm sorry, 69 villages, almost 70 villages that came under uh, the leadership of the, the Massasoit Usamequin. This is a, you know, pretty big area. And, um, you know, each of these villages, some of the biggest villages might have two or 3,000 people and some of the smaller villages might have about uh, you know, maybe only a couple hundred people, but still, you're probably looking at close to a hundred thousand people uh, in in the Wampanoag Nation um, altogether. Now, we had also just survived a really you know devastating plague, the yellow fever that came through our coast and with previous European ships, because ships had been coming up and down the coast at that point, pretty steadily for a hundred years, doing trade, doing um, exploring, doing slaving. A lot of folks have been taken in slavery off the coast. Um, so there was uh, you know, already plenty of contact with Europeans. And that sickness that came down the coast actually just really wiped out a lot of the coastal villages that were the most populated too. Um, so who knows, before that sickness came through, you may have seen a population of 150, uh, 200,000 people uh, among Wampanoag Nation. And that was the, uh, that was the sense of the size of it. Uh, we had a way of life where folks would come together in the central village for the wintertime and, and be with extended family and, and uh, your whole tribal group uh, sharing resources. But then come springtime uh, with the new year, you would go out to your planting grounds and live with your immediate family Basically, you'd move to your, your crops, move to your gardens, and that was your summer house. And you'd live there until after harvest, and then you'd come back in together to the wintertime. And this cycle of life kind of repeated again and again, this contracting and expanding of a village. But in the summertime, the early explorers said that the villages were stacked so close together that you wouldn't know where the cornfields of one stopped and the next began. Um, so really a densely populated coastline. 
uh, a lot of people in a way of life that was uh, rhythmic and and uh, and worked with the seasons and and the uh, the different changing environment that we have here in New England. So we have kind of the stage set. We have the uh, mythology of the Thanksgiving meal. One of the other parts of the history that's there, and I'm wondering what your side, your version of this telling is, is a peace treaty that was signed between pilgrims and the Wampanoag tribe. Yeah, so that's the 1621 agreement. And uh, as I said, that we had seen plenty of European people coming up and down the coast before. Captain Hunt was chased out after spending three days harvesting sassafras. And uh, it was seen as a medicinal cure-all in Europe. And and he was allowed to do some harvesting. But after three or four days, they decided he'd done enough. And his group was surrounded by a number of Wampanoag warriors. And I guess they just stared them down and, and notched their bowstrings onto their bows so they were ready to fire um and that gave the indication to the the crew that it was time to move on and they did you know so this was the uh this was sort of the setup of of how things might work ahead of time but we saw uh, a difference in these folks uh that showed up on the mayflower they had women with them they had children with them uh they had furnishings and animals we there was you see that they were intending to stay and settle in. And this was really different. You also saw that they, uh, that they were sick and hungry and dying and in desperate situations. So we, we chose to reach out to them and help them. It wasn't entirely, you know, without, uh, without caution and hesitation. Usmequin sent uh, interpreter Squanto, who was from one of the northern tribes, Penobscot or Passamaquoddy, to speak with them first. And then after finding out that his English was not good enough, he then sent a man named Squanto who had lived in England for some time to do the translating for them. And it shows a lack of trust uh, somewhere there, probably for both the English and for Squanto. And in that, um, you know, you can see that there's a, there's not necessarily just a blind walking forward into this, this whole thing, but we had been weakened by this plague that had come through the coasts just a few years earlier our numbers, some some say as much as a 90% population attrition. I think that number might be a little steep for the whole of our nation, but certainly the coastal villages, if you saw, if, if a village contracted it heavy, you might see that whole village wiped out. And many of the inland villages were the ones that, that maintained their, their numbers and strength. Uh, however, we were in conflicts with our southern neighbors or western neighbors, the Narragansett at that point in time. And... Uh, because we were in conflict, those diseases didn't continue to spread down the coast, and we were weakened. And they they maintained their strength in numbers and strength of uh, you know ability to to impose their power and their will around the region. And we saw a benefit in aligning with these English folks that uh, showed up on our shores as a new ally uh, to help uh, us maintain our independence from the Narragansett, and and it worked to our benefit at that point in time. Uh, the English, of course, needed any kind of ally, somebody to help them survive because they knew nothing about how to survive in the land with uh, harsher winters than they were used to in England and harsher summers than they were used to in England, both. And uh, to be able to, to learn about how to, how to navigate in, in this land that they did, had know nothing about. You know, so that became uh, sort of the beginning of 
of the relationship between uh, Wampanoag people and English people, um, you know, in a formal sense. Um, it was a treaty that only lasted um, less than three years until it was broken. At that point, uh, Squanto, who was sent to, to be a translator among the English, uh, as a Wampanoag person who became familiar with English and his time in slavery in England, he was very anglicized. He spent most of his young adult life in England and became very much acculturated to English customs and ways and thinking. And, um, you know, uh, and in that he, uh, he, he may have seen himself as more English than Wampanoag, uh, because when he got the chance to be an interpreter, he did a lot of, uh, misinterpreting of the facts, uh, lying to both sides, trying to gain power at every angle he could. And so they, uh, the Usmequin demanded that his head and hands be turned over, you know, as proof of his execution uh, for treason. And the English found him to be too useful of an ally and too of a, too uh, valuable of a person, and they chose to harbor him as a fugitive. and And that ended the good relations with uh, between you know the Plymouth Colony and and uh, Usmequin. Uh, they would they would later be somewhat repaired, but that was uh, that was the first real breach. Um, after that, they were cut off and isolated from trade for, I think, two years after that until uh, until some things could repair the some of the relationship. All right. So we have some of that history of the Mayflower, of the pilgrims, of the relationship between the Massasoit and Squanto and the tribes at that time. We're 400 years later now, more than 400 years later now. What does the Thanksgiving narrative, the Thanksgiving story and the Thanksgiving holiday itself that so many people have off and use as a time to celebrate with their family, often not even referencing the original story, although in in some cases it very much is. There's kids who are dressed as pilgrims and Indians and and have these kind of performative storytelling roles in some cases. I guess I want to know, certainly how does that story and how it's celebrated now land with you, but also how did you learn about it growing up? Well, I mean, I guess growing up, it's always been sort of embedded in what I've learned about both, uh, you know, from from the Wampanoag side of my family, and then from the the non-native side of my family as well. My my mother's father, uh, being James Dietz, who was a expert in cl- colonial American history and or anthropology, archaeology. Um, so I, I got to hear about it from you know both ends, all through growing up, really. Um, but always the the sort of um, deconstructing of the myth. My grandfather on my non-native side loved to talk about how the the English language that we look at in the original document um, says nothing about Turkey and the chances that they were getting Turkey is probably nil to, to zero. The truth is when they went out fowling, it probably referred to f- birds that were on the water. And that would probably have meant duck or geese that would have been on the menu. And, you know, that's that's probably the more traditional part of the menu. He loved to talk about how there was no such thing as pumpkin pie. Uh, it hadn't been invented yet. And so he always liked to sort of deconstruct this idea of this traditional meal. 
uh, that's really, you know, when we look at pumpkin pie, even it's, it's really emerging of, you know, European and, and native food ways and such. Uh, pumpkin being a Wampanoag word, it comes from it comes from our uh, our agriculture and our our uh, you know our plant methodologies of of growing things. That's that's our our uh, our product, our cultural product. And you certainly couldn't have pumpkin pie without pumpkin. Um, you had the pie crust and the uh, the egg and you know the the turning this pumpkin product into a, a pie is a, a whole you know European style of cooking. But you know this this myth that's separate from the truth, you know, really sort of does a lot to sort of hide the those kinds of nuanced, you know, reality of of what this history actually is. It, it simplifies it down to the idea that we are the Indians and not the Wampanoag, uh, as if we're the same as Indians on the plains or you know up in the northwest coast or. Down the Yucatan Peninsula, where you know it's just an Indian, we're all the same, not a distinct culture unto ourselves, uh, with their own customs and practices and languages and legal traditions and and all these things that come with it. And it seeks to sort of uh, validate the whole colonial project and this idea that somehow by signing this treaty that we would mutually assist each other and aid each other in times of war. That this was. Wampanoag people giving up our country, Wampanoag people giving up our uh, our standing and our jurisdiction over over the place that we had always been, and somehow, you know, coming under this idea that we would be English, that we would be under English law or English citizens of some kind, and that's it, it's it's just not the truth. Um, you know the the powers that be that stood at the time throughout colonial America, all of these different colonies had to deal with the power of the native people that territories that they were in. We were the power in the Americas at that time, the ability of a colony to exist and continue to, to, to have, you know, interactions with England or to be able to, you know, use the resources of the land or to be able to build houses was all entirely dependent on the goodwill of, of native people around them to, to be able to allow that to happen. If we had chosen, we could have wiped out any one of these colonies as, um, as easily as we wanted to. But that, that goodwill that was created by trying to conduct themselves in a reasonable manner um, is what allowed for folks to stay there. And that meant acknowledging the jurisdictional authority of native tribes and native nations by you know, acknowledging the the trade relations and networks and customs of the people and entering into and engaging with them as as equals. And it's never portrayed that way. It's never portrayed as a, as a dealing with equals. It's always, oh, you know, the they invited the Indians over for dinner to say thanks. And it's, well, you know, um, not exactly, not exactly. You know, the, the whole idea for the Puritan mind to even break bread with a non-Christian person as, as a part of a Thanksgiving was, you know, it just wasn't a part of what you would do or what you would see, how you would move through the world at that point in time. We were, we were not seen as, um, as people that you would, you know, do that with, uh, 
you know, you wouldn't deal with the Thanksgiving because it was religious in nature. You dealt with the different people that were a part of that faith. You know, they came over here, they said, for religious freedom. Uh, they said for freedom from tyranny from the king. And yet when they got over here, one of the main things that they sought to impose was their own religious intolerance on us and their own uh, tyranny of the laws of the king upon us, um, rather than looking at the freedom that they saw and the um, the egalitarian culture and communities that they saw within within the framework of native people and, and join in, they chose to, to, to try to impose the very things that they were running from onto us. And that's eventually, through the generations, what happened. So one of the things you described is kind of the flattening, the colonial flattening of Wampanoag people into Indians, a, a category that was not or is not or should not be considered one monolithic thing. I know you've also done a lot of work to steward your tribe's culture and your people's culture and to articulate some of the uniqueness of the Wampanoag, Mashpee Wampanoag people. Maybe we'll start with language. We'll get to artwork as well, but maybe we can start with language. What what does it look like to steward um, your people's language in the 21st century? Well, language, I, I, uh, I was young and ready to go to college to learn history. And uh, I moved out here uh, from the Bay Area where I had been living previously and decided while I was waiting for my uh, residency to kick in, I was just going to take a few language classes and learn how to say some things and was just amazed with how much cultural information is embedded in a language. It's, it's astounding. You know, after 10 years, I was turned around and you know, realized I had been doing language work for 10 years and recently got back into it again and uh, hope to be able to some point soon take the uh, teacher certification test, which is my, my ambition to have sometime this year. But it's, it's incredible the wealth of information that's just embedded in a language. It, it deals with you know, how we center ourselves versus the world. English is a very I-focused language. You capitalize I, you center the self. You know, for Wampanoag, the language is very much about connection and community. It's about your relationship to the others around you um, and how that holds true. It's about a living and non-living world, animate and inanimate. So as Spanish is divided into male and female, masculine and feminine, uh, our whole language is divided into animate and inanimate. And depending on what the subject is, all of the verbs, all of the, you know, um, every, the whole, the whole sentence, all the particles and the, um, you know, all the, uh, the pluralized endings, everything has to agree with whether it's an animate or inanimate subject. So it's, it's foundational to, to the whole way that we talk about the world. And of course, you know, there are things that are, you know, animate that, are just not considered animate within the worldview of uh, the West, you know, such as a wave or a cedar tree. These things are also considered animate, and and that's just not a part of the the Western worldview. So it's 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 just a different outlook to 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 think about and perceive the world if you if you filter it through the the language of of a different culture. You see the world different. You have to talk about the world different. You have to perceive it different. And then how does the language exist now in the 21st century? I mean, we're hundreds of years later after that disease came and wiped out 
a significant portion of the Wampanoag people, um, and of course, many other additional layers of colonization and manifest destiny have happened since then. Are there many speakers of the language? I mean, I know you've studied for many years at this point. Um, wh- how does that language live now? Uh, it's um, it nearly it nearly was wiped out entirely. It's uh, you know it's something that we've worked very hard since 1993 to revive, uh, primarily under the leadership of uh, Jesse Little Dofermino and the Wampanoag Language Reclamation Program. But you know we've had a, a, a we've had a number of tribal citizens really dig in and and uh, take on the work of of learning to speak and learning to to use the language and and um, it it nearly did die though it was a point when um, there was no fluent speakers at all uh, there was a point when what was used was just a few particles and you know, a couple of words and phrases here and there. Uh, but not a complete language. And uh, some of the older folks might remember, uh, I remember talking to some of the old people from from Herring Pond Wampanoag tribe. They talked about their, she was maybe 85 or 86 in the early 2000s. And she talked about when she was a little girl hearing her uncle speak it in the woods when they were hunting. So it's circumstantial when they had that chance to be in that activity that might use that language. But it wasn't a day-to-day thing that anybody spoke for a long time. And uh, we were very fortunate in some ways to have a great wealth of resources uh, to draw from. One of the first things that the Puritans sought to do was to convert us to the, to the Christian faith. As I said, they sought religious freedom for themselves, but religious uh, intolerance for us. And the f- first book printed in North America is actually the Bible in Wampanoag. Uh, part of the foundation of Harvard, the Har- Harvard School of Divinity, to spread and propagate the faith amongst the Red Men. That's what the founding of Harvard is. And one of the first projects they set to do was to translate the Bible. And, um, you know, this work was done prim- initially by a guy, John Elliott, but he found his skills in Wampanoag lacking. So what he did instead was teach a number of native people of Wampanoag, Massachusetts, and Nipmuc descent to, uh, or, you know, tribal citizenship to uh, translate and to transcribe and write reading and writing and set them to the task of translating the Bible. So it's just a huge document right there to have from the 1630s or 1640s when it was initially published. So very pure form of the language like, uh, you know, going to Shakespearean English. It's an older form of the language, a conservative form of the language. Uh, but with that, teaching so many Native people the tools of reading and writing, we began to share that knowledge amongst ourselves, amongst each other. And by the, the mid-1640s in New England, there was more Wampanoag people, monolingual, literate in Wampanoag than there were English people literate in English. So this is this means you've got Wampanoag people that don't even know English, but they're reading and writing in Wampanoag. And more of them than, than English speakers are reading and writing in English. Most the, most of the folks that came over from England, to be fair, were probably the illiterate people. Um, you know, literacy was very st- tied to class in England, and it wasn't the, the wealthier upper class people that were were uh, making the voyage over to the new world. 
Um, you know, so it wasn't the most literate section of their population. But for us, we saw it as something that wasn't, uh, we didn't have these uh, stigmas of classism. Knowledge was to be shared. It wasn't to be hoarded. So we shared it amongst ourselves. And we have almost twice the volume of information contained within the Bible in the form of wills, deeds, letters of complaint, personal correspondence between Native people. And so just a huge body of literary work to draw from that's from original native speakers of the language. So thankfully uh, we have that work and it's all helped to, to revitalize the language. And it's, uh, it's kind of ironic because in the very beginning, those were the same tools used to take the language away and to help colonize us and, and strip it from us. Um, but later on, those very same tools became the tools that we used to revive it. So. All right. So I, I want to move on from language to artwork. You're literally talking to me from an art studio right now. I know you're a material artist in many traditional Wampanoag arts, including, I guess, wood carving, stone carving, copper work, feather work, antler, etc. How have you honed elements of your own craft and how have those skills and techniques been passed down generationally? Yeah, you know, generationally is certainly a part of it. There's a lot of those, a lot of those skills in one way, shape, or form. I've I've either learned directly from my father, or or learned to improve through my father. Uh, learned from my uncles, you know. Learned from my grandma. Learned from you know people in my family. You know, uh, while I was working at Pequot Museum and Research Center, uh, learned to build our traditional style of homes. Working from them. I worked for uh, Plymouth Plantation Museum for a good number of years as their artifacts reproduction manager, and you know learned a lot about artifacts reproduction in that that capacity. Uh, but you know, just as well, um, you know, working with uh, I guess these cultural uh, uh, expressions, different means of making things. Um, I dance and I sing with the uh, Wampanoag Nation singers and dancers, and do powwow dancing. So. You know, some of it's about making a regalia so that I can be presentable on stage as, as you know, in our traditional attire with the traditional, you know, things that you might have and carry to dance. Um, you know, whether it's a, a war club or a, a rattle or a fan or the other different items that you might also want to have if you're doing, a, you know, a war dance or a calumet dance, you know, depending on what you're what you're doing, you might want to have different things. That's, um, you know, part of what keeps me moving and working and making things. Um, it's nice to emulate the aesthetic of, of what I see of my ancestors' work and to, um, to present myself what I think when I go into, into ceremony or into, um, you know, eventually the day when I, you know, go back to the power of creation, you know, I, I hope to, to emulate the, my ancestors so that they might know me and see me in, in reflection of who I am. And so to be able to present myself as that, I think is an important thing for me. And ma many of the different styles of art, you know, whether it's the feather work for my hairpiece or, you know, doing the shell work so I can be, you know, adorned in jewelry, um, you know, the copper for my protective elements. Uh, these, are, you know, these things are all a part of being able to present myself in, in the way that my ancestors will recognize me. And, you know, it's, it's something that, that many of the people in my community also appreciate, um, you know, and something I can share with them. Uh, so it's, it's 
is something I you know enjoy. I enjoy making. I enjoy the methods of practicing techniques of of creating some of these artworks. But also, a lot of these things rely on materials that you end up having to go into harvest from the natural elements themselves. Uh, so a lot of the a lot of the things I I make my art with are actually things I have to go and 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 harvest and and claim from from the natural world which keeps me engaged with the environment and keeps me in these places that a lot of other people don't go necessarily. Uh, it's, it comes around springtime and I, I wonder what's happening if I haven't gotten into the cedar swamp, um, you know, because there are things that, that we, uh, that we use from the cedar swamp that we harvest. And, and if I haven't been out there harvesting, I've got to wonder, well, what's, you know, what's going on, you know, what's going on out there? How, how are the conditions? Is it wet? Is the sap running? Um, you know, as the bark peeling, it, you know, these other things that, that start to tick through my head because that seasonal part of the harvest is also, you know, ingrained in the cycles of life and, and the cycles of interacting with, with the, the natural world that we've always lived in. Um, so that part of it is also really, I think, a, an important element to me is that, you know, hands-on and interconnected, you know, part of living within my homeland and doing these things that my ancestors have done for thousands of years, whether the product is, you know, the end end result, but also, you know, the methods of how we get there from from a green and growing plant um, to a to a finished product. So, and then what do you do with your f- finished product? Um, it, I I know that you've had exhibitions in some cases. I'm also wondering is is the artwork that you're doing something that you also sell is it something that you do partially for a living um and then lastly in that same train like if if folks are interested in taking a look at your art where how can they do that yeah um so uh aqua bay wampum is you can find me at aquabaywampum.com or you can find aqua bay wampum on instagram um those are two great ways to find me i do sell my artwork um, I do, you know, contemporary artwork, as you might see behind me in the studio as well, canvases and such, prints, block prints, screen printing. Um, you know, arts have always interested me since I was a little kid. Uh, I was pulling up some, I was looking through an old old sketchbook my aunt gave me from 1982 the other day. Um, you know, so I've been, been doing art since as long as I can remember. Um, so once I started to uh, learn these cultural arts that are, you know, making jewelry, making, you know, bags, making traditional arts that just became one other facet of my art, artistic expression. Um, but those, those things can be found on those websites. Um, I sell some stuff. Some stuff is not for sale. Some stuff is uh, for purposes of giving away or ceremony or has cultural value that, you know, are things that, that are, you know, for only some, some people. Um, you know, if I make sacred items, there are things that I, I only want to share with people that, you know, understand the sacredness of those things and, and the, the faith that, that we come from. Um, you know, so, so if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to make something like that, then that's certainly not something I would sell for money. But there are, you know, there are things like, um, you know, just the, uh, the, the shell beads or the, the copper work that, that might be for anybody. Um, you know, they're just things that I'm trying to trying to have out there that people might be able to adorn themselves that look nice. Uh, jewelry, I think all 
all parts of the world. We all enjoy jewelry. Um, you know, so, so those things I sell and, and, um, you know, uh, as well as the, you know, t-shirts and sweatshirts and canvases and prints and all those other things that are part of the wider range of, uh, of art. Um, and then, you know, uh, there are some of those things that I trade as well. Um, you know, some of these more sacred arts that, uh, that I'll trade for with other native artists to be able to, you know, maybe, uh, acquire things that I couldn't produce with my own skill set. Uh, but I might see somebody out there that, you know, is, for example, an amazing weaver. I'm a bad weaver. I'm a terrible weaver. Um, and yet there are amazing weavers in my community. I'm happy to trade them, you know, whatever, you know, feather work or, or, um, you know, uh, whatever all else, wampum to, you know, to have, uh, to have what I can't produce well in my own. Um, yeah. So, you know, all these different ways. Wonderful. We're, we're going to have to wrap up in just a moment. I'm wondering if there's anything else you want to leave people with in terms of the legacy of Thanksgiving, the Mayflower, the Thanksgiving feast, and how it's celebrated now, how we can explore uh, a celebration that, that does not desecrate, desecrate your people as we celebrate yeah. now. Well, you know, for our folks as Wampanoag people, as I mentioned earlier, we had 13 Thanksgivings a year. So the idea of being thankful for what you're able to receive from the world is, you know, truly something that I feel we need more of in this world. We need to be more thankful for what we get from this world. We need to be more appreciative of, of all that, that this world gives us. Um, so what does being thankful look like? You know, what does being thankful look like? How do you show an appreciation for all these gifts of the world. Um, and certainly it's not by, um, you know, being oppressive. It's not by um, disregarding the existence, the, you know, cultural integrity, the, um, you know, the, the self-determination of native people whose land you've come to be on. If you're doing that, you're not being thankful. There's no thankfulness in, 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 um, in taking from somebody else or dispossessing somebody else of their rightful inheritance. And we all should be able to inherit our culture, our language, our beliefs, our, our means to live in the world and, and the very ground under our people's feet from, from our forebears. There's no reason why that should be interrupted. Um, but, you know, to also is in the more broader sense, you know, we've got to think about how are we going to be able to have these things for our children how are we going to be able to appreciate that these things are so necessary and so good? The clean air, the clean soil, the clean water that all life depends on. Um, we are thankful for the deer because we eat them. We understand that they sacrifice and they give their life for us and the preciousness of that gift. So we have a thanksgiving for the deer because we understand that sacrifice is so sacred to give their life. We need to start looking at the whole natural world as if we're not above it, as if we're not somehow entitled to exploit it and extract from it, but understand that we're just a part of it. Be thankful that we have, you know, uh, space to grow gardens, that we have forests that, that have, uh, 
you know, turkey and other game in it that we might be able to hunt, that we have streams that have fish in it and do the things to take care of this environment so that we can continue to have those things into the future. Um, otherwise we're being selfish and greedy and not very thankful at all. Um, and thankfulness is about, you know, is about being uh, able to reciprocate, being generous, uh, being appreciative. And those things are certainly, uh, something we could use more of in this today's culture and climate. Hartman, we'll have to wrap it up there. Thank you so much for joining us today. No, certainly. And, uh, you know, thanks again for having me and giving me, you know, time to share, uh, share with y'all. Our pleasure. As we approach the Thanksgiving or thanks taken holiday, we've been in conversation with Hartman Dietz, a cultural steward of the Wampanoag people who survived the original Thanksgiving interactions with pilgrims. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.